Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Welcome to Red Run Blonde. This week's story is pretty creepy. It actually ended up giving me nightmares. When Benjamin Schneider made his way to his neighbor's door, he could literally feel the hair on the back of his neck stand up. It was quiet, way too quiet on the isolated farm. At this time of day, his neighbors would have been up tending to their chores. As he approached, he noticed that the horses and the cattle were still in their pens. It was weird. No one was about. With some hesitation, Benjamin knocked on the front door. No answer. How's this possible, he wondered. There are three adults and two children in this house. How could no one be there to answer the front door? He tried to peer in the window, but the morning sun hadn't come up yet. Benjamin summoned all of his courage, and he opened the front door. Through the dark, he could make out a mass on the floor. Upon closer inspection, he recoiled in horror. It was his neighbor lying in a pool of blood. He'd been savagely beaten. And what was worse was he wasn't the only victim. The entire family had been slaughtered. This week, I'll talk about the Milstad Axe murders. So with it being October, I wanted to keep things spooky. And I didn't realize how much this story ended up being that way. So I found it while looking for some real-life haunted house murders. 
I found a website called AmericanHauntingsInc.com, and I found this story. And from there, I read more articles. I didn't realize that I think I've read it before, but anyways, I think many of these articles got their info from a book written by a journalist named Nicholas Pister, and his book's called The Axe Murders of Saxtown. Apparently, when Nicholas was young, he heard these stories growing up in Milstadt and decided to write about it as an adult. So for a little background, Milstadt, Illinois, is a small village near St. Louis, and more than half the residents are of German heritage. Milstadt comes from Middlestadt, meaning center city, but the state misread the papers submitted to name the city, and they called it Milstadt. But it's also sometimes known as Centerville. In this town was the neighborhood known as Saxton, in which lived the Stilton Reed family, consisting of 75-year-old Carl, his son, 35-year-old Frederick, his 28-year-old wife Anna, and their two children, 3-year-old Carl and 8-month-old Anna. So just like all the other immigrant families in Saxdown, the Stilton Reeds work hard to make a life for themselves with their farm. German immigrants came to the area to start their own farms. They were able to buy their own land, which was incentive to move. It's never easy to uproot your family and settle in a completely different country, but they made the most of it. Carl Stilton Reed had come to America in the 1840s with his wife Maria. And Carl and Maria had a very hard life in Germany. Two of their homes had burned down, one due to arson and the next due to a lightning strike. They had three children die and only one survived, which was Frederick. It took two months by boat to make it to St. Louis. And from there, they made it to Illinois, to Saxton. So there they settled their farm in which they raised livestock and grew crops. Unfortunately, Maria died in 1866. So Frederick and Anna took over running the farm. And Carl became something of an alcoholic, often seen wandering the roads, muttering to himself in German. So all this makes what occurred on March 19, 1874, so disturbing. Their neighbor, Benjamin Schneider, went to the home that early morning to get some potato seeds from Carl. The day before, Carl had attended an auction, carrying a basket which was presumed to be filled with money. He'd made an agreement to sell Benjamin the seeds, which he was to pick up the next day. When Benjamin discovered Carl's son Frederick, also known as Fritz, lying on the floor, it was a gruesome sight. Fritz had been severely beaten, his throat slashed from ear to ear, with three of his fingers severed. Nearby in a bedroom, he found Anna and the children. They had apparently been killed while sleeping. Baby Anna was lying on her mother's chest while little Carl was next to her, and they were all horribly bludgeoned to death, too. The mother's throat was cut, and the trio was almost unrecognizable due to the brutality forced upon them. And then finally, Benjamin came to the patriarch of the home, Carl, and he too had been savagely beaten, so much so that he was almost decapitated. In his hand, he clutched a handful of hair, which could have been the murderers. There was one survivor that ended up being the family dog, Monk, and he peered up at Benjamin from his post next to Anna's bed. Benjamin thought it was odd because this dog was known to be very vicious to strangers, so why didn't he attack? 
and who knows what horrors he witnessed. Benjamin left and ran for help to the neighbors, but they were too scared to help him. Benjamin's brother, George, a butcher, was so appalled by the sight of the bodies that he passed out. Think about it, a butcher passing out. Someone did cover the bodies with sheets, though, and they sent word to Milstadt. Since Saxton was so small, they had to enlist help from nearby Bellevue, which was nine miles away. Saxton didn't have anything like a sheriff's office or even a bank. A county deputy and a coroner arrived on the scene, and they surmised the events as this. They think the killer came in through the back door. And from there, he murdered Anna and the babies while they're sleeping. The men saw blood on the walls, ceiling, and floor, and indentations in the plaster. So they think the deadly tool was most likely an axe. Blows made in the frame of the door led them to believe that the killer was left-handed. And the force of the blows and the act of it hitting the plaster and wood probably woke Carl up from his sleep. And they think he was the next victim. Now, Fritz had been downstairs sleeping on the couch, so he was attacked last. From the loss of his fingers, they assumed that there was a struggle with the killer. And Fritz lost his fingers while putting up his hands to block the blows. These were very aggressive, brutal attacks on this family. Many said the victims were virtually unrecognizable. I think that's what disturbed me a lot, just thinking of someone, you know, viciously attacking children and a family. Also, because of the rain on the roads leading to Saxtown, they were almost impassable, leading many to think that the killer had to be a nearby resident. Leading from the home, Deputy Sheriff Hughes found footprints that looked like they were made by very distinctive boots made with heels shod with nails and what looked like marks from an axe being drug on the ground. So naturally, he followed them. After tracking the prints for a short distance, he found some chewed chewing tobacco that was covered with blood. So he thought the tobacco was used to staunch a wound on the killer sustained during the attack, I guess that was an old wives' tale that if you put tobacco on a wound, it would help heal it. The tracks then led to a very compelling suspect, Frederick Boltz, brother-in-law to Anna Stilzenreed. Boltz had been married to Anna's sister, and the tobacco was found leading to his farm, and the hair found clutched in Carl's hand closely matched the hair on Boltz's head. Around $100 in cash was presumed missing from the home. Apparently, there had been some trouble between Bolts and Fritz over money that had been borrowed in the sum of around $200. So from what I've read, the family frequently loaned out cash. Frederick Bolts borrowed money and never repaid his debt, which caused some very hard feelings. Money can create an awful rift between friends and family, as we all know. I think that's why a lot of us are hesitant to lend money to those we know well. And if you're a grudge holder, that can be even worse. Frederick found a fellow friend in John Afkin to commiserate with his bad grudge for the Stelzen Reed family. Afkin had worked for the family previously. His work was basically removing rocks and trees from the farmland. Work that would have used tools such as an axe or anything else that might have been used to kill the family. This man was known to anger easily, and he too had hair, like what was found clutched in Carl's hand. 
Now, I know you armchair detectives like me are wondering if either of these gentlemen had wounds that would have corresponded with the wounds the killer might have sustained. But from what I found, neither had wounds. Bolts was examined by Deputy Hughes specifically. So Bolts was arrested and taken before a jury. When he was shown pictures of the crime scene, he refused to view them and turned a ghastly white. The jury found him not guilty, and he was released. The ceremony for the family to be laid to rest at Frigavogel Cemetery was held on March 22nd, with over a 1,000 people in attendance. Now, you might think that's odd because it's a very small town, but that's due to the slings becoming front-page news across the country. It was the most talked-about crime scene since the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Speculation about who the murderer or murderers was all the talk. The coroner said that he felt two men were responsible for the murders since he thought an axe and a knife were used in the attacks. Directly after the ceremony, both men were arrested. In this article on AmericanHauntingsInc.com, it said Bolts resisted arrest but agreed to be taken in if he were provided with a Bible to read while he was in jail. And it said Afghan was absolutely emotionless upon arrest. It was said he was equally unemotional when he first heard of the horrors of the family massacre. The men faced a grand jury in April of 1874. Due to insufficient evidence against them, they were both freed. But authorities still felt that Bolts was responsible for these brutal killings. And remember that basket I mentioned that Carl had carried at the auction, possibly containing money? Well, this money supposedly came from a recently gained inheritance, which he had just gotten from the bank. This same basket was found empty when the house was searched after the murders. Bolts also might have benefited from the entire family's demise since he was married to Anna's sister. Their deaths would limit the people the inheritance went to, ensuring that he would benefit. And indeed, he did sue the family's estate to claim his share. He was awarded about $400. Word was that Bolts enlisted Askin to help him with the murders, possibly making him do most of the work. If we're going on the assumption that robbery was a motive with money most likely being kept in the house, I mean... Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Anyone could have become a suspect. Another one that stood out was a guy named George Schneider, brother of Benjamin, the man that found the bodies. A few days prior to the murders, George had sold them their dog, Monk, 
Now, remember, Monk was said to be a fierce dog who sat by while the murders occurred. Now, this could be a number of reasons, but many think the dog knew the killer or killers, and that's why he didn't attack. Another George was a suspect, too, this one named George Killian. When the bodies were first discovered, he came to see what was going on. Apparently, he wanted to see Anna's face to see if it were as badly bashed in as he had heard. The bodies had just been discovered and everyone was too afraid to even enter this house, so how could he have known her face was bashed in? Did he just let something slip? If you're a true crime fan like me, these murders sound eerily like the Velisca murders. These murders occurred on June 10, 1912, in the small town of Velisca, Iowa. A killer made his move in the dead of night. Velisca is just like Saxton, a very small settlement. Another small town where everyone knew each other very well. So that night, the killer crept inside the home belonging to 43-year-old Josiah and his 39-year-old wife, Sarah Moore. Sleeping in their beds that night were their children, 11-year-old Herman Montgomery, 10-year-old Mary Catherine, seven-year-old Arthur Boyd, and five-year-old Paul Vernon. Also fatefully staying that night were family friends, the Stillinger sisters, 12-year-old Lena Gertrude and eight-year-old Ina May. As they slept, they were viciously attacked, just like the Stilton Reed family. Between around midnight and 5 a.m., the killer waited in the attic for everyone to fall asleep. Evidence of spent cigarette butts showed this. Then the killer crept down, first going to the master bedroom. There slept Josiah and Sarah. With an axe, the two were murdered. Josiah was hit more than anyone in the house. His face was so bludgeoned that his eyes were gone. All of the victims were hit with the other side of the axe, but Josiah was hit with the blade. Sarah was killed next. And from there, he worked his way to the sleeping children, killing each with the blunt end of the axe. He reportedly went back to the parents' room for a little more bludgeoning, knocking over a shoe filled with blood. And then next came the Stillinger sisters. The most alarming part of this attack is that Lena was most likely awake when it happened, unlike the rest who were sleeping. She looks to have been molested because her nightgown was pushed up and her underwear was missing. And the girls were killed in the same manner as the Moore family. This massacre was a bit odder than the one carried out on the Stilson Reed family. This killer didn't leave directly after the murders, but he hung around the house. It appears that he'd taken clothing and placed it over all the mirrors in the house and a glass entry. And in addition, there was a four-pound slab of bacon found by an axe and some partially eaten food on a plate. Just like the Stilton Reed attack, this one was very brutal. Axe marks were found on the ceiling. The victims had been hit around 20 to 30 times each with the axe. But just like the Stilton Reed murders, these murders went unsolved. There were, of course, many suspects. It's a very well-known case in the true crime world, and there are a lot of podcasts on it that you can check out. There's a very interesting book that I read that attempts to connect many similar crimes that were happening in the Midwest around this time. The book is called The Man from the Train. It's by Bill James. It's interesting because James is a baseball statistician. He's not a true crime writer. He worked very closely with his daughter, Rachel McCarthy James, to connect these crimes. 
and they went deep into research via old newspapers from various areas, and they came upon one possibly good suspect, a man named Paul Mueller. Apparently, this man had worked as a farmhand for a family that had been killed in 1897 in a very similar brutal manner. They think the man worked as a lumberjack since many of the murders happened near logging areas, and the killer always used an axe. The thought in most of the murders was that it was someone known to the family. The idea of someone traveling around and killing people he didn't know was unheard of at this time. A good bit of these killings were very close to a railway, and an axe was used. The killer covered the bodies, and many had young female victims who were probably molested. James found that from 1890 to 1912, there are around eight families murdered per year. Remember, this guy knows statistics from his baseball statistics work, so he was able to deduce that these seemingly random killings were connected. The Jameses think that Mueller was responsible for 14 murdered families. That's totaling 59 victims. Additionally, he may have possibly been involved in another 25 family murders. The evidence for these isn't as concrete, though. James even connected him to the very infamous Hinterkaifeck murders that occurred in 1922 in Germany. And Mueller was a German immigrant, so many of you know this case, but I'm going to go over it quickly. On March 31, 1922, near Hinterkaifeck, a small farm in Germany, six people were brutally slain. The victims were 63-year-old Andreas Gruber, his wife, 72-year-old Kazila, their daughter, 35-year-old Victoria, and her children, 7-year-old Kazila and 2-year-old Joseph. And also murder was the family's maid, 44-year-old Maria Baumgartner. About six months before the murders, their previous maid had quit because she kept hearing strange noises in the home, and she thought it was haunted. Another weird occurrence was when Andreas found a newspaper lying about, but he swears he didn't remember buying it. He also found tracks in the snow that led to the farm from the forest, but none leading away from the home. There were also weird sounds of footsteps in the attic, but when they went up, no one was ever found. What's awful is this maid had just arrived on March 31st, right before the murders. The family and the maid were all killed with blows to the head. It's suspected that they were lured to the barn one by one and killed, all except for the maid who was killed in her bedchamber and baby Joseph who was in his bassinet. It was four days before the bodies were discovered. The same story. The farm was quiet. The family hadn't been seen. The family's bodies were found stacked in the barn. And the killer had stuck around after the murders. Evidence was found of food being eaten from the pantry, and oddly, the animals were fed. Neighbors reported seeing smoke from the chimney when the family would have been dead at the time. Like the other murders, this too went unsolved. There was much talk about the baby Joseph being illegitimate or possibly one of incest. It fueled many rumors. One man, Lorenz Schlittenbauer, stood out. The initials LS appeared on Joseph's birth certificate, leading many to think that this was the child's father. Lawrence and his friends were there to find the bodies, and 
Oddly, he had a key to the home since he was a close neighbor. He was also very interested in finding where the boy was. But, you know, that may actually absolve him of any murder suspicion. So many questions come from all these murders. I mean, were they connected? If you can't read The Man from the Train because it's excellent, I highly recommend it. I read it maybe about a year ago. It's really interesting how they connect the similar murders. And you kind of wonder why no one tried to do this before. If you're interested, give it a read. They go into detail about each case, a lot of detail, and many that I haven't even mentioned. But since these crimes happened so long ago in a time where forensic evidence wasn't gathered, they will most likely stay unsolved. Long after the crimes of the Stilton Reed home, it was demolished. But current residents on the land say it's haunted. Owner Randy Eckert said many strange occurrences have happened, everything from phantom dog barks to doors opening on their own to strange footsteps being heard in the night. Eckert claims on the anniversary of the murders, the activity is really heightened. So what do you think? Is this ground haunted? Who killed the family? And is the slaying connected to the other similar murders? Let me know what you think. Join the Red Rum Blonde Facebook group or look for the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And don't forget, there's many ways to listen to the podcast. It's on Acast, iTunes, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. So I'm going to try to make Tuesday possibly my release day. We'll see how that goes. Give me your opinions on that if you can think of a better day. And always, if you're interested in merchandise, go to tpublic.com. You can get some really cool t-shirts, to mugs, to tote bags, to tapestries to hang on your wall. So thanks so much for listening, and I'll catch you guys next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.